Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Today is 6 October uh, 2022. A couple of things to get to uh, before we start. First of all, uh, we're on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Defense underscore podcast. If you can find the time, check us out on Twitter. If you like the podcast, you'll probably like Twitter, our Twitter page, our Twitter. Uh, yeah, I guess it's a Twitter page or Twitter account, whatever. If you don't have Twitter, it's no big deal. Uh, most of the stuff you get on Twitter, we're probably going to talk about on the podcast anyway. So before we get started, um, some old business, and that was a DOD policy on cluster munitions. I think we were talking about HIMARS and some of the ammunition that goes with HIMARS and is in accordance with the DOD policy on cluster munitions. So real quick, I won't go crazy with this. The best thing I could find is from the Office of Secretary, Deputy Secretary of Defense from November 30th, uh, 2017. You can find it online. Uh, it's called the DOD Policy on Cluster Munitions. And it's probably, I don't know, six pages, five or six pages. I won't go crazy reading it. Uh, basically, I'll give you the quick summary. Um, cluster munitions provide the joint force with an effective and necessary capability to engage area targets, including mass formations of enemy forces, individual targets dispersed over defined areas, targets whose precise location is not known and time sensitive or moving targets. Cluster munitions are legitimate weapons with clear military utility, and they provide distinct advantages against a range of threats in the operating environment. Uh, let's see. The following establishes Department of Defense policy regarding cluster munitions and adjusts the previous policy established by then-Secretary Gates on June 19, 2008, standards for the procurement of new cluster munitions and the authority to retain and use cluster munitions in active in inventories. Like I said, it's kind of a long document, six pages. I'm not going to read it all. Um, it really doesn't say what changed, but here's... I'll continue on with the policy. So continuing or beginning with respective FY19 budgets, again, this is from 2017, the military departments will program for capabilities to replace cluster munitions currently in active inventories do not meet the standards prescribed by this policy for procuring new, new cluster munitions. So it lays out some stuff that the new cluster munitions are have will have. Um, quick summary, the department will will only procure cluster munitions containing submunitions or submunition warheads that do not result in 1% unexploded ordnance across a range of intended operational environments. Uh, military departments and combatant commands will maintain sufficient inventories and robust stockpile surveillance program to ensure operational quality and reliability of cluster munitions. Uh, cluster munitions that do not meet the standards prescribed in this policy for procuring new cluster munitions will be removed from active inventories and demilitarized after the capabilities have been replaced by sufficient quant quantities of munitions that meet the standards in this policy. Uh, 
the department will not transfer cluster munitions except as provided for under U.S. law. The operational use of cluster munitions that includes anti-personnel landmines shall anti-personnel landmines submunitions shall comply with presidential policy. That's probably the out of us stuff. So then there's some technical specs that the cluster munitions just have, and I'll only read a couple. Uh, let's see. Cluster munitions for the purpose of this policy is defined as munitions composed of a non-reusable canister or delivery body containing multiple conventional explosive submunitions. Excluded from this definition are nuclear weapons as well as obscurance, pyrotechnics, non-lethal systems such as leaflets, and weapons that produce non-explosive kinetic effects, flechettes, rods, or other electronic effects. Landmine submunitions are also excluded since they are covered by existing policy and international agreements. That's kind of important. This policy applies to systems delivered by aircraft, cruise missiles, artillery, mortars, missiles, tanks, rocket launchers, or naval guns that deploy payloads of explosive submunitions that detonate via target acquisition, impact, altitude, or self-destruct, or a combination of both. In this case, we're referring to HIMARS, so that would be artillery. Okay, these again, these are all technical specs. Uh, all submunitions are submunition warheads that are dispensed from cluster munition as intended and are expected to arm and detonate. Any submunition or submunition warhead that fails to detonate after properly dispensed from a cluster munition will be considered UXO, unexploded ordnance, even if it's armed. And here's some more technical specs. Uh, let's see. In order to minimize risk posed by unexploded, unexploded submunitions, cluster munitions that are procured after this date of this policy must meet one of the following three criteria under the Sec Deputy Secretary of Defense unless the Deputy Secretary of Defense approves the, the, an exemption in writing. Here's the three. Not more than 1% of submunitions or submunitions warheads once dispensed from the non-reusable canister or delivery fail to detonate. That's one. Two, each submunition or submunition warhead must have all of the following characteristics. One, sub, each submunition must be equipped with an internal power source that is essential for arming and detonation. The submunition or submunition warhead is not designed to be detonated by mechanical means alone. And what I take as mechanical means is somebody stepping on it, somebody running over it, somebody knocking it, and it going off. So it can be... It could be uh, exploded two different ways. Okay, the second one is each submunition warhead is equipped with at least one automatic, automatically functioning electronic self-destruct mechanism that is in addition to the primary arming and detonation mechanism that is, and that is designed to destroy the submunition or submunition warhead on which it is equipped if the submunition or submunition warhead is not detonated by the primary arming and detonation mechanism. So it's got to have a backup uh, each submunition or, or submunition warhead that does not de detonate or self-destruct is once armed, rendered inoperable in 15 minutes or less by means of the irreversible exhaustion of component, i.e. power source, that is essential to the operation of the submunition or submunition warhead. And each submunition or submunition warhead does not arm, that does not arm after being deployed from the non-reusable canister or delivery body cannot be subsequently armed and detonated <clears throat> Detonated by incidental handling, contact, or movement. Uh, this munition is not... I don't want to get into all that. So basically, that's it. I won't go crazy with it. 
Submunitions are part of the inventory. They're going to be part of the inventory, at least as of 2017. I don't, know, I don't think that's changed. If it has changed, I couldn't find it. But there are some rules about the submunitions, and they're pretty much kind of safety rules for it. Uh, it's got to have a backup. It's got to, uh, it's got to be rendered safe. And it's got to explode. It's got to self, they call it detonator self-destruct. So anyway, that's, hopefully I didn't confuse anybody more than I confused myself. You can find this online. I think I typed in DOD policy on submunitions and it came up. Okay, I'll pause there. So in how that subject came up, we were talking about the latest uh, package to Ukraine and more HIMARS. And since our last episode, I think, We've had another package, and this is for October, which was a uh, day before yesterday. And this is a DOD release. I always go to the source. Uh, dated for October, $625 million in additional security assistance, excuse me, for Ukraine. Uh, capabilities in this package include four HIMARS and associated ammunition, 16155 howitzers, uh, 75,155 artillery rounds, 500 precision guided 155 artillery rounds, which we know is Excalibur, 1,155 remote anti-armor mine systems. So that's the second delivery of mines uh, sent via 155. Uh, 16105s, 30,000 120mm mortar rounds, <clears throat> 20 Max Pro Mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles, uh, MRAPs, uh, 200,000 rounds of small arms, obstacle and placement equipment, and claim, more Claymores, Claymore anti-personnel mines. So that was from two days ago. And the DOD, you got to give credit where credit's due, pretty squared away. They also gave us a roll-up of everything. It's called the Ukraine Fact Sheet for Immediate Release. Dated for October. And on the fact sheet, it says the United States has committed more than $17.5 with a B in security assistance to Ukraine since January 2021. <clears throat> and more than $16.8 since the beginning of Russia's unprovoked and brutal invasion on 24 Feb. The United States security assistance committed to Ukraine includes, okay, we've already gone over most of this, like 1,400 stingers, 8,500 javelins. Uh, let's see, 32,000 other anti-armor systems, 700 switchblades. Uh, so the total now is 142 howitzers and up to 880,000 155 artillery rounds, almost a million rounds. Uh, 2,500 precision-guided 155 rounds, which is the Excalibur. 2,000 155 Rams, remote anti-armor mine systems. So we've given them 2,000 of those. 36,105s and 180,105 millimeter rounds. Uh, 276 tactical vehicles for towing weapons. 22 tactical vehicles to recover equipment. 38 HIMARS. So we've given them 38 now. Last couple of packages have been pretty heavy duty on HIMARS. Uh, 20 120-millimeter mortars and 115,000 120-millimeter mortar rounds, 1,500 tow missiles, eight NASMs. Um, I think we're probably getting into the stuff we've talked about before. 200 113s, 440 MRAPs, 440 MRAPs. 
let's see, anything good? Over 50 counter-artillery radars, those are good. 20 multi-mission radars, uh, 10 air surveillance radars, M18 Claymore mines, and that's all the highlights. So anyway, that's a good roll-up by the DOD. Again, all this stuff is online. You can look at it if you want. Go to DOD under releases, and then it'll pop up. So talking about Ukraine, something I've been following. Of course, we know uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, Dr. Bill LaPlante, William LaPlante, and I call him Bill. Uh, he was in Brussels a couple of days ago, and I haven't seen any. The only article I saw on it was that he was going to Brussels. And then, so he did. And what they talked about or what was all about, I don't know if there's any defense reporters there because the only uh, information I found on it was from our friends from the DOD. Again, and this is another DOD release dated 28 September. And it says, readout of the National Armament Director's meeting under the auspices of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. Of course, you define Ukraine Defense Contact Group. It's a bunch of nations that get together. I think they've met at least three or four times. And they talk about how, you know, how to provide assistance to Ukraine. And under that group, uh, Bill LaPlante uh, went and in Brussels. And he chaired the first meeting of the National Armament Directors uh, for Member Nations of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group on 28 September in Brussels. He was joined uh, by NADS. That's a terrible acronym. That's a, that's a one. <laughs> NADS. Just call them the National Armament Directors. Don't call them. <laughs> Don't call them that. That's a one minus. Anyway, he was joined by the National Armament Directors and representatives from 45 nations. Uh, the U- European Union and the NATO Treaty organization that kind of caught me off guard. I apologize for laughing so much. And the NATO and NATO, uh, the forum enabled frank and open dialogue about the defense industrial base challenges and opportunities to increase production of capabilities critical to Ukraine's long range defense. So the U.S. delegation, led by Dr. Laplante, outlined the DoD's analytical approach to identifying supply chain constraints for major components and subcomponents, and plans to increase the production of ground-based, long-range fires, i.e. HIMARS and MLRS, air defense systems, and air-to-ground munitions, and other capabilities. Uh, Nearly 20 international partners briefed similar efforts to strengthen and expand their nation's industrial base to accelerate production, spurring productive dialogue on areas for multinational coordination. So out of 45 nations from the EU and NATO, uh, 20 of them briefed with the aim of long providing long-term support to Ukraine participants recognize the importance of standardizing requirements, thereby creating more interchangeable and interoperable systems. In addition, they discussed building sustainment capacity in Ukraine, including forward repair activity, access to spares, and other sustainment enablers. Uh, let's see, this group is committed to standing up smaller working groups to collectively drive up progress on the above topics. In coming weeks, work groups will define multinational strategies to mitigate supply chain constraints, increase production, and pursue interchangeability in portfolio areas critical to Ukraine's long-range success. And just from this article, I take that as, 
sustainment, access to spares, forward repair activities, ground-based long-range fires, air defense systems, and air-to-ground munitions. That's what I take that. So this Ukraine Defense Contact Group seems like they're doing good work and looks like they're being led by the United States. When you still build build a plant over there, he's going to get stuff done. Uh, And that came from Department of Defense spokesperson Jessica Maxwell, dated 28 September. Okay, I'll pause there. And so while we're on the subject of Ukraine, this is probably the most we've talked about Ukraine ever. Uh, This article comes from Army Times, dated 3 October, from Rachel Nostrant. U.S. may establish new command in Germany to arm Ukraine. Report. I think they got this from the New York Times. So the New York Times is reported, and the Army Times is quoting it or referring to it, saying the new mission is being established at U.S. European Command Headquarters in Germany to oversee how U.S. trains and equip Ukrainian troops, according to a report by New York Times. The plan for a formal structure in Wiesbaden, in Germany, for the U.S. efforts to aid Ukraine following Russian invasion in February was presented by the UCOM Commander General Christopher Cavoli to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in late September. Of course, uh, that's a four-star over there in UCOM. That's a, a combatant command. Now, here's an unnamed source. So, citing an unnamed source with the U.S. military and the Biden administration, New York Times reported that a new command would include approximately 300 personnel and would likely report to Cavoli. He's combatant commander. While the command's headquarters will be situated in Wiesbaden, training would likely take place at U.S. bases in Germany, such as Grafenwehr. I can never say that right. I, people say Graf, so I say Graf or Hornsfeld. It's probably Hohensfeld, but people say Hornsfeld. So anyway, Graf or Hohensfeld, if you've been in Europe or Germany in the Army, you know what I'm talking about, uh, where the Army has large ranges. Uh, final decision on the command is expected within a few weeks. And then there's the standard boilerplate in cord- close coordination with our allies and partners. We continue to take steps to align our support to Ukraine armed forces in a more unified manner. Uh, see anything else? This is interesting. Signs of potential restructuring have been seen in recent weeks as a multinational logistics cell moved from Stuttgart to Wiesbaden earlier this summer. The name of that is the International Donor Coordination Center. This co-location with U.S. Army Europe and Africa headquarters, as well as 18th Airborne Corps, increased the ability of the organization to rapidly support Ukraine operations. I didn't know U.S. Army Europe was in Wiesbaden. Learn something new every day. I thought UCOM was in was in Stuttgart. Anyway, I should write that down. Where is UCOM? I think it's in Stuttgart. I could be wrong. And where is U.S. Army Europe and Africa? I guess it's in Wiesbaden. That's a due out. Okay, U.S. troops in addition to forces from Canada, Lithuania, Denmark, Poland, Sweden, and the United Kingdom have been training Ukrainian forces through the Joint Multinational Training Group Ukraine. Initially stationed at the Combat Training Center in Ukraine, western Ukraine, the troops were removed just before the invasion began. I think that was in the news. Um, Is there anything else good on this? I think this is all pre-decisional, too. I don't think they've decided. So... um, General Cavoli briefed Secretary Austin, and he's going to decide what to do. Is there anything else? Nope, that's pretty much it on that. And while we're on Army news, we might as well talk about 
Army Futures Command. This is kind of a follow-up, too. I probably should have started out with this, uh, but I got distracted on the cluster munitions. Anyway, we talked about this. This is from... This is from Army Times? I thought it was from Defense News. I guess it's from Army Times. Uh, from Jen Judson, who we like. She's uh, all over this Army Futures Command. She did a great article, pretty long article, I don't know, a month ago. We covered it, talking about the future of Army Futures Command and how they didn't have a CG. Uh, it's a four-star command. And then they'd been operating off the, the interim C, uh, CG, which was a three-star. And questions about was AFC going to ever nominate a, another four-star to take it over? And I didn't think they were. Shows you how much I know because the next day after that article came out, the Army announced this guy, uh, General James Rainey, who was the Army G357, a heavy-duty position, uh, was going to be nominated. Uh, this guy, General Rainey, was the Army G357 who's involved in modernization and everything else. Not enough hours in the day for that job. And before that, he was a CAT commander, Command Arms Center out of Leavenworth, and before that, he was third ID commander. So the guy is uh, very squared away. Apparently, he was uh, nominated and approved because on 4 October, which was the day before yesterday, he took over uh, as commander of AFC there in Austin, Texas. Do I need to say anything more about him? Uh, let's see. Probably not. Probably said enough. The only thing is, I hope uh, those guys were um, in AFC. Every time you saw anything about AFC in the past, you know they're always they're in Austin and they're doing this and they're doing that and they're wearing their civilian clothes and they're I don't know trying to look like they're too cool for school. Just wear your uniform. Yeah, if I had any advice to give to the new commanding general, tell tell people in AFC to wear their their uniform and uh, you know. You could put a three-piece suit on an elephant, but guess what? Everybody knows it's an elephant. You're not really fooling anybody by wearing civilian clothes. Just wear your uniform and you'll be all right. That's just my advice. I'll pause there. All right, we're doing all right. 22 minutes. I got two more stories. One's from the Defense Post, kind of a site I stumbled upon a little while ago, and I hadn't revisited it, and then I've been revisiting it more and more because it's, it's very good. I recommend you check it out, the Defense Post. It's becoming kind of a go-to site for me, along with uh, Breaking Defense and any all the other stuff I use. Uh, this one's from Joe Sabala, S-A-B-A-L-L-A. We talk, we've done stories by him before. Uh, date is September 30th. And, you know, I always like a good shoulder launch story. And this is, uh, the title of this article is Saab to Establish Carl Gustav Rifle Production Facility in India. Uh, Swedish, firm, Swedish defense firm Saab announced Tuesday it would set up a new production facility for the Carl Gustav M4 rifle in India. Uh, initiative seeks to booster, boost, booster, bolster arms production in the country and provide the necessary support to the Indian Army and other military customers worldwide. Um, let's see. It contributes to New Delhi's vision of having a world-class defense industry. It's a natural step Natural step to set up a production facility for the Carl G. or Carl Gustav M4 in India, given the long and close association we have with the Indian Army and one of, as one of the foremost users of this system, Saab official Gorgon Johansson said. Uh, arms production at the new facility is expected to begin in 2024. 
Let's see what else. And that's pretty much it. I mean, it's a really short article. That's what I like about the uh, the Defense Post articles. They get to the meat right away, very quickly, very succinct, very concise. So if you don't, if you're not familiar with the Carl G, I pull it up for you. Where is it at? Go to the Saab. They got a pretty decent website. It's a little. It's kind of I don't know. It's okay. So here's about the what is about the Carl G is. Um, lightweight, robust, reliable. It's a good weapon. Everybody knows it. Uh, Carl G or Carl Gustav is a recoilless rifle that is man portable, multi role weapon system that allows dismounted soldiers to effectively deal with multiple challenges on the modern battlefield. So, it's, so Saab makes it. Saab they also make the AT4, um, which is a fire. You know, you you throw it away once you're done with it. Uh, but this one here, the Carl Gustav, you can reload it. I think Saab makes the in-law also. I mean, these guys know what they're doing when it comes to anti-tank weapons. No doubt about it. Uh, the weight is 7, K- 7 kg, which is about 15 pounds. Uh, length is about a meter long. Sights is open sight. Now, I'm going, like I said, I'm getting all this from the Saab website. So open sight, red dot, tele- telescopic sight, and advanced fire control device. Ammunition is anti-armor, anti-structure, anti-personnel. Uh, I'm going down the website as I talk to you. Uh, let's see, there's a really good thing where it talks about, one thing it has is, uh, it's got a precision round counter and basically it says integrated full caliber round counter greatly improves logistics and maintenance. I kind of like that. I think that's a feature that modern weapons are going to, modern weapons are going to have is it. It tells the uh, operator and the maintenance people how many rounds have, have gone through the weapon, which, you know, that comes later in the maintenance. You don't have to guess and stuff like that. It, I think that's a good feature. Let's see what else. Talks about the sights. Uh, system is attached with a standard clip-on tele- telescopic sight and additional optics, including an open sight, red dot sight, and advanced fire control devices. Wait to get to the ammo. This is what I want to get to. Okay, here's the ammunition. It's got a lot of different ammunition uh, you can use with it. Okay, the, for, it's all 84 millimeter, just so you know. Uh, it's got HEDP, which is uh, fin-stabilized, high-explosive, dual-purpose rounds. It's optimized for fighting in built-up areas. It's effective against armored vehicles, as it is against enemies protected by structures like sandbags, bricks, and wooden walls. It has an impact and a delay mode. Its effective range is 500 meters. Targets are armored vehicles, structures, and bunkers. The round weighs 3.3 kg, which is about about six pounds. So that's one. And then there's an 84 millimeter MT76. It's a tandem warhead, which will neutralize enemy troops inside a building or behind a structure. It is also powerful enough to take out light armored vehicles. Weighs 4.4 kg, is about eight pounds. Kind of heavy. Uh, effective range is 600 meters. HEDP is 500 meters, so this sucker is 600 meters. Okay. 84 meter ASM 509. What does this thing do? It targets structures and enemies protected by, it's an anti-structure, light armor vehicles, weights 4.2 pounds, effective range is 300 meters. It can be fired in two modes, an impact mode for destroying walls or light armor vehicles, or a delay mode for defeating enemies behind walls or fortifications. 
that's kind of a, have you ever heard that term counter defilade? That's kind of a counter, counter defilade um, round, which is a big effort, counter defilade. Uh, there's, a, there's somebody a lot smarter than me said, after the first round is fired, everything's a counter defilade fight. Anyway, I don't go too much in that. Okay, then there's 84 millimeter higher explosive. This is a rocket assisted high explosive anti-tank. Allows dismount soldiers to defeat the majority of armored vehicles and made battle, main battle tanks in the sear in the side or rear aspect. Effective range is 700 meters. That's pretty good. 700 meters. Weight's 3.2 kg, about six pounds. Not bad. That sounds like a good round. Uh, there's an 84 millimeter heat 551 CRS. This is a rocket assisted. Uh, an improved and sensitive munition properties, significant behind armor effect. It can defeat the majority of armored vehicles, the main battle tanks, 700 meters and 3.5 kg. Hmm, it's a little heavier. I don't know what it does. Uh, let's see. 84 millimeter high explosive anti tank 655 CS. That means confined space. So you can engage armored vehicles and main battle tanks from confined spaces during urban warfare, which is very handy. Uh, effective range is only 300 meters on this. Weight is pretty heavy, 4.8 kg, probably 8, eight to 9 pounds. Uh, there's another high explosive, 700 meters. What is this one here? 84 millimeter ADM-401. This combats tr enemy troops in the open and soft-skinned vehicles by launching a cluster of flechettes. It is ideal for close combat Area defense. That sounds handy. It's only effective for 100 meters, though. And it's pretty light, 2.7, about 5 pounds. And, of course, we know that because it fires flechettes, it is not part of the DOD policy on cluster munitions because it shoots a flechette. We learned something today. 84-millimeter uh, HE441D. Uh, this can be fired to detonate on point targets using impact mode or as an airburst against Area targets by setting desired range. That's heavy duty there. That's kind of a counter defilade. And this thing has got an effective range of 1,300 meters point targets or 1,250 area targets. Weights 3.2, protects protected and unprotected enemies and soft skin vehicles. I like that round. HE441D. Airburst. Long range too. All right, moving on. I hope this is not boring to you. This is pretty interesting to me. Okay, HC-448 can be fired to detonate on point targets using impact mode. Uh, let's see. Covers a larger area than 400 meters. Fully compatible with fireball technology. don't know what that is. It's an airburst or impact 1500 meter range. They have an alum round. Uh, 84 millimeter alum 545C offers dismounted troops available the ability, sorry, to illuminate the battlefield during operations in the dark. Effective range 300 meters to 2,100 meters. Illuminate area 4 to 500 meters. Illum time is 30 seconds. Weight is 3.1 kg. That's good. Uh, they have a smoke round. Uh, effective for blinding and screening targets, spotting missions. Range up to 1,300 meters. Weight's 3.1. And then this is stuff for training. They got a 20 millimeter subcal. Uh, provides realistic handling and target practice for draining crews. Range up to 300 meters, 4.5 kg. Uh, they got a 7.62 subcal. Range up to 700 meters, weight 4.5 kg. They got a TPT round, which is uh, 
training practice tracer, cost-effective training solution, uh, 300 meter range, 2.5 kg. And is that it? I got a full caliber target practice round, which cost-effective for training for firing the Carl G, 700 meters, 3.2. And that's it. I don't know how many rounds that is. One, two, three, I don't know, 10, 12 rounds. Anyway, that's the Carl G for you. Uh, we're at 32 minutes. Man, that took longer than I thought. And I apologize for going over. I want to do this in 30 minutes. But here's a story I've been kind of keeping an eye on. And I can't ignore it anymore. Uh, this comes from Defense News, Stephen Losey, L-O-S-E-Y. No end in sight on C-130H groundings, other planes of feeling mobility. You might be thinking, what? C-130s are grounded? Yeah, this came out a few days ago, September 27th. Uh, Air Force grounded 117 C-130H variants of the Hercules after cracks in the barrel propeller barrel assembly were discovered in some of the planes that had older propellers. The Air Force Reserve and National Guard, Air National Guard, which have older planes, have been heavily hit by the groundings. So that happened September 27th. So on this article came out October 5th, which was yesterday. Good follow-up. It says, uh, so with no end in I'm going to the article now. With no end in sight for grounding virtually the entire fleet of older C-130H Hercules, the Air Force is turning, other air, turning to other aircraft and trying to find workarounds to keep mobility missions moving. Air Force can't say how long it will be before most or all of the grounded C-130 hotels variant will be back in the air. Replacement parts and groundings are in short supply. Let's see... And then we talk about how they grounded 116 of them on the 27th. Um, Air Mobility spokesman Major Bo Downey said in emails to Defense News that the service has enough airlift capacity to meet the service's requirements around the world, while much of the C-130H fleet is down. Command is unable to say how long it will take before most or all the C-130Hs will be flying again. Our primary focus through this process remains the safety of our crews. That's a pretty darn good focus. Uh, they're looking for workarounds. Another Air Force spokesman said, oh, for the reserve, said, C-130Js and Hs that have already had their propellers assemblies replaced with the newer NP-2000 are stepping forward in for the grounded Hercules. Let's see. Uh, the spokesman said the fleet of 10 WC-130Js WC Hurricane Hunter aircraft are unaffected by the grinding, which he said is fortunate given the ongoing hurricane season. I didn't know that's what they used. Hurricane Hunters and C-130. Okay. But a slide posted last week on an unofficial Air Force Facebook page indicated that entire inventories of MC-130 hotel combat talons and EC-130H compass calls and the sole TC-130H were also part of the grounding. That's not good news. Uh, propeller manufacturer Collins Aerospace said the problem with propellers emerged after the company delivered them to the Air Force. Uh, let's see. This issue was created after delivery following a maintenance procedure that was performed outside of Collins Airspace, Aerospace Network. I don't know how to interpret that. This does not affect newly manufactured propeller hubs or fleets that have the NP-2000 upgraded propeller similarly solved. AMC did not dispute Collins' statement. I don't want to get into this 
tit for tat. But anyway, that's pretty much it for the article. And if you're not familiar with the C-130, which I kind of was but wasn't, real quick, I say real quick, uh, let's see. The latest model is the J model. Uh, see, this is from the Air Force. Air Force Credit to the Air Force. Uh, every time I've looked up an Air Force uh, weapon system, they've always had something on their website that talks about it in good detail. Photos and everything. But anyway, so the C-130... This is from their website. The C-130J is the latest addition to the C-130 fleet and has replaced aging C-130Es and some of the high-time C-130Hs. So they just went from uh, H to J. They skipped I, I guess. Compared to the old C-130s, the J model climbs faster and higher. We really don't want to talk about the J, do we? We're talking about the H. So let me get to the, the difference here. Stand by. Here we go. So, uh, date deployed. So, a C-130A, the first model, was deployed December 1956. The C-130B, May 1959. The C-130E, August of 1962. The C-130H, the model we're talking about, is June 1974. And the C-130J, the newest one, was February 1999. The inventory of the Air Force, active Air Force, has 145. The Air National Guard has 181. And the Air Force Reserve has 102. And this is current as of June of 18. It's got a crew of, uh, let's see, C-130J is crew of three, two pilots and a loadmaster. C-130E or H has two pilots, a navigator, flying engineer, and loadmaster, crew of five. And this got all kinds of stuff about range. C-130H range is 1,496 miles. C-130H max range at normal payload is 1,208. Uh, max payload for a C-130 is 42,000 pounds. Takeoff weight for an H is 155,000 pounds. I've probably talked enough. So anyway, if you want to find out more about the C-130 series, Go to the Air Force website. It's really good. It goes into great detail about all the models. So anyway, that's pretty much it. So 38 minutes, a little bit long. I didn't want to talk that long, but I don't know where I got bogged down. Was it the... uh, might have been the cluster munitions that bogged me down. Or it could have been the Carl G stuff. Either way, more than 30 minutes. I apologize. So that's pretty much it. We're on episode 56. That's pretty much it in the book. So thanks for all the support. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you like the podcast, you might like our Twitter. We're on Twitter at defense underscore podcast. If you got the time, check us out. If you're not on Twitter, that's okay too. That's pretty much it. Thank you very much for your support and thank you and good night.